Good morning. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord, to be together. It's always a great day, right? Amen. Right. Always a good day for that. Today in particular, um, Chad asked me to preach for him, oh, maybe a month or so ago. And I said, well, what would you like me to, to do it on? And he said, well, just faithfulness. I said, well, I could like, I could go anywhere with that. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Faithfulness. So I said, okay. So I began thinking about some things and trying to figure out what was it that, you know, where was God leading me? Began praying about all that. And I went to my wife, Miranda, and I started, uh, I kind of had some basic ideas of what I wanted to do. And I, I went to her and she just looks at me. She says, that sounds miserable. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, scratch that. <laughs> She's right. You know, God, God, God gives us the people we need in our lives, and he gave me my wife. And as I look back on the direction I was headed, I'm like, she's totally right. It was a, it was a bad idea. So uh, here we are. I started all over at that point, and I realized at some point in that process that today would be Palm Sunday. Now, for those of you who did not grow up in an old um, traditional church, uh, I grew up in an old Methodist church, and uh, we celebrated Palm Sunday every year, so I knew exactly what that was, but many of you probably don't. For me, uh, growing up as a kid, what I thought Palm Sunday was, is it's the day that we get to, as little children, we get to hold the little palm branches up and march through the church. And usually, at some point, uh, that, that soprano... Uh, woman that sang too loud in the choir, she would sing a solo of some kind, and miserable, like my wife said, is kind of the word for that too, but uh, <laughs> I, I said we're in a different place now. So as I grew older, I learned that Palm Sunday, what it was really about, um, it comes one week before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter, and it celebrates and remembers as Jesus, the triumphal entry is what they call it, when he marched into Jerusalem. So, as I realized that, I thought, faithfulness. The Jewish people, for all of the Old Testament, beginning in the garden, uh, God had spoken, and he was actually talking to the serpent, and he said that one of Eve's descendants would crush the head, crush his head, crush the head of the serpent. So God made a promise in those days. And for all of the Old Testament... God was working and moving in that direction. Jesus, on Palm Sunday, arrived in Jerusalem. The Messiah, the promised one, the one they'd been waiting on, showed his faithfulness all through the Old Testament, and here he is. So I thought, what a better place to start than Palm Sunday to talk about God's faithfulness. So that's where we are. Now, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, I like to study and learn about the history uh, behind the scriptures. So I read the scriptures, but also go and learn and try to find out what the culture was like. And I really believe the more I've done that, the more excited I get about it because I start to see things in the scriptures that I never saw before. So today what I wanted to do is talk about Palm Sunday. We're going to actually be in Luke chapter 19. Uh, if you want to turn there. Now we are going to I'm going to be in some other passages too. I'm going to chase some little rabbit trails because I'm a little ADT as well. Um, but I want you to see, first of all, before we get into the Luke portion, I want you to see the culture. I want you to see what it was like in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus arrived. So let me set the scene. First of all and foremost, you should know that the Jewish people have been waiting for the promised Messiah. 
Over a thousand years they've been waiting. God had promised in the Garden of Eden that Eve's descendants would crush the head of the serpent. And then later on, he tells David that one of David's descendants would be the one who would do it. So God has reiterated this throughout the Old Testament as well. Under the Roman government, the Jewish people were truly longing for what they believed the Messiah would do. He was going to conquer everyone, establish his kingdom, beginning in Jerusalem. They believed that what God's promise, that God's, sorry, God's promise to crush the head of the serpent, that's what it meant to them. That the, the conquering king Messiah would come and start his kingdom in Jerusalem. At this time, politically, Jerusalem's part of the Roman Empire, led by Caesar. Pontius Pilate's the governor of that area. Oppression and taxation is not exactly what the Jews had been hoping for. Um, but let's talk about Caesar himself for a minute. Caesar believed that he had literally come from heaven to earth, and that he was the son of God incarnate on the earth. Talk about deluded, right? Although you might say the same thing of Jesus when he made that claim too, right? It's kind of a little difficult. He used propaganda to create fear and communicate his power. Caesar, um, some of the things that were said of Caesar, Caesar is Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Caesar. Now you, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that before. But it wasn't Caesar's name, it was Jesus' name, right? We read in the book of Acts that Peter took that saying. It was Caesar who said it first. But Peter took what Caesar had said and changed it with the name of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Jesus. So Peter, when he does that, think about that. He's standing in the Roman streets and he is saying, proclaiming Jesus over Caesar, stealing one of Caesar's quotes. Talk about being bold, right? It's incredible to me the boldness that he, he had to do that. They also use the phrase king of kings and lord of lords to describe Caesar. Caesar instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth called the advent of Caesar. You could even give Caesar offerings so that your sins could be forgiven. This man, I don't know, he minted coins. He did that as propaganda he, so that he could spread his name uh, and communicate his power. Now, the, the coins and the money were of particular interest to the Jews because if they paid taxes to Caesar, then that meant that they were breaking two uh, commandments. No other gods before me, since he's claiming to be God, right? So they'd be breaking that, that commandment. And then also, you shall have no graven image. So those are two commandments that they would break if they paid the taxes. So I'm going to chase a little rabbit trail here. In Mark chapter 12, verses 14 to 17, there's some Pharisees that come and they try to trap Jesus. And they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. 
Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Now, this is an incredible incredible story. You've probably heard this before, right? Jesus' last line, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus is saying, look, Caesar can have his silly little coins. God wants your heart, right? But there's something else that you may have never noticed. I want you to notice. When the religious leaders try to trap him, he asks them to show him a coin, right? That means if he's asking them to show him one, that means he doesn't have one, right? Jesus is not carrying a graven image because he's not going to break the law. But them? <laughs> what, the, what happened with them? They showed him a coin. They had a coin. They had already broken their own rules. So, so the, the hunters here, they're trying to trap Jesus. They become the hunted. He actually turns it and flips it on them, and he actually tricks them. You see what I'm saying? I just think Jesus is cool like that. So it's incredible to me to see those kinds of things. All right, let's talk about Pilate. Pilate was the governor. Uh, Caesar had put Pilate in the area of Jerusalem so that he could um, govern the area and take care of all of that. Caesar, I'm sorry, Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea. Uh, it was a, about a day's travel to get from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So he was in a mansion, rich, living luxuriously, sending out his soldiers to do most of the governing, and he's just kind of, you know, soaking in everything. And, and I guess he comes in every once in a while. So the Jewish people, for the Passover, which is what the uh, week prior to uh, the Resurrection Sunday, prior to Easter and the, the cross and all of that, is, it's called the Passion Week. And the Jewish people were coming to Jerusalem. This is why Jesus had come to Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover. This is something they did, they did every year for the Passover. They would show up in, in Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover together. So that means that there are thousands and thousands of Jewish people showing up in this town where they weren't normally at. That meant for Pilate, it was probably important that he gets there because there's going to be a lot more governing to be done with all of those extra people, right? And so that's exactly what he did. Uh, The Jewish people would have outnumbered the Romans in the city during that time. Um, More people to govern means more stress for Pilate. And there's also always the possibility of a Jewish uprising. And so Pilate's definitely going to show up. Why would there be a possibility of a Jewish uprising? Of course, because they're all together, right? But not only that, they're also together because they're going to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover actually remembered what God had done, how God had been faithful to his people way, way, way back in the Old Testament with Moses. When all of the people were trapped by a foreign government and enslaved by a foreign government... God intervened through Moses and brought the people out from under the foreign government, right? So that's what they're celebrating. They come together to do that. They're, they're all together. They're remembering what God had done to bring them out of the, the hands of the foreign government then. And they're feeling the pressure of the foreign government that they're in right now. So there's extra added um, incentive for Pilate to make sure that he's around. Does that make sense? Pilate would show up And when he showed up, he was not going to just quietly come in. 
He wanted to make sure that his presence was known, that, that the people that were all there would find out that he was there so that there would be no possibility of any uprising, right? So he made a big deal out of it. So his procession, the way that he would come in, is he would start out, um, and he, he would come in from the west. He, he, his procession was designed to be authoritative, to show his power. It was designed to scare people so they wouldn't rise up against him. But the first thing that they would see whenever he would, would process into the town is the uh, Roman emblem, which is an eagle. Kind of like we as Americans, right? We have the bald eagle. So the Roman emblem of the eagle was the first thing that they would see. I'm going to take another little rabbit trail here. Because this is where the culture stuff meets the scriptures that makes it so fun for me. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, a teacher of the law says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You've probably heard that verse before as well. Jesus is basically saying, It's hard to follow me. I'm homeless. I don't even have a place to sleep. Right? That's the way we've always interpreted it. But what about that rest of that? Foxes have holes and birds have... The birds have nests part? Jesus is referring to Pilate. Pilate has a nest in Caesarea, in his mansion in Caesarea. Right? And then the foxes... Actually, in, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus actually refers to King Herod as that fox, is what it says. And so when he refers to the foxes, fox, saying foxes have holes, he's talking about the Herods. Uh, they were uh, Jewish kings who had lived in palaces and they long since, uh, they had not been concerned about the Jewish people at all uh, for years. So Jesus is not just saying he's homeless here. He's saying that his way is different. It's not like you're just going to follow, follow me like you'd follow any other political figure. My way is different. I don't even have a place to sleep. You see what I'm saying? So I love that. So uh, in the, back to the procession now. They're going to process in. The first thing they see is the eagle. And the next thing that would happen in this procession when Pilate would come into town is that he would, you would see uh, all of his soldiers. They're dressed in all of their armor. They've got their spears. They've got their shields. They're, they're showing, coming out in power uh, so that they can you know, hinder any Jewish uprising. Next, uh, you'd see some soldiers that were carrying some etchings, and these etchings uh, depicted battles that had been won. They depicted their power, their strength, their domination. They carry these metal shields, they would bang on them, and the sounds would have brought fear and terror to the people. Pilate himself would come in on a huge stallion, a war horse. Symbol of power, strength, military conquests. He rode in from the west, which was right through the center of town. So, so Pilate would come in from the west side of town and demonstrate all of his power. This, environment, this is the environment that Jerusalem is in. They have Caesar saying he's God and taxing the people relentlessly. Pilate was ruling with power and strength and intimidation. The people are feeling distraught and powerless. They aren't exactly slaves, but they don't feel like they're very far from it. Now remember, there's also been talk about Jesus among the Jewish people. Some believed that he was the coming Messiah. 
the one who had finally crushed the head of the serpent. There was a buzz, an excitement, anticipation of what was about to happen. All of the Jewish people were gathered together to celebrate the Passover. All of this stuff adds up in their own minds. Like the Passover, they were going to gain their freedom, is what they believed. Rome, this time, not Egypt, was the enemy. Pilate had just entered the city in all of his stately glory. Jesus is just outside of town. The players are being assembled. Would Jesus fulfill the things that they had said of the Messiah? Would he roll in with an army and conquer Rome once and for all? Let's read. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. When he had said these things, he went on ahead. We kind of read this, the Matthew version of this a minute ago. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt, that's a donkey, tied there, on which no one has ever sat. I think that's an interesting detail that Luke gives us. Nobody ever sat on this one. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. By the way, if Jesus knew that a donkey was going to be in the next town, he knows your future too. And he's prepared for your future as well. He's not going to be surprised by it. Verse 36. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus. Pilate comes in from the west on a war horse. Jesus from the east, from the Mount of Olives, on a donkey. This is not what they're expecting, right? The east side of town, where the Mount of Olives was, it was not really the front door into the town. It's like coming through the back door. Like the way an owner would come into his house. One commentator actually said that when Jesus came in on the donkey, it was like the battle was already over. Jesus was simply entering a city which was already his. There was no need for demonstrating power, strength, domination, or intimidation. But wait. Why would he come peacefully when they were waiting for this conquering king? They were itching and expectant for battle, for the Messiah, the conquering king. What's Jesus doing on a donkey? How could he crush the head of the serpent if he was riding a donkey? Where was his army? They call this the triumphal entry. But to many a triumphant at all, 
However, when things don't look right, we have to remember God is faithful to his people and to his word. Let me say that again. When things don't look right for you, for me, we have to remember God is faithful to his people and to his word. We can bank on it. Was there something that the people were missing? Something that they didn't understand? Yes, of course there was. Some of them may have remembered a passage actually in Zechariah. Prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 verses 9 and 10, he says this. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from the Jews and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Now the Jewish people, they had memorized the Old Testament. So this passage from Zechariah, they would have seen and they would have known that. They would have seen Jesus coming on the donkey and they would have remembered this passage about the Messiah, the promised one. So they knew it. Jesus was using the donkey to say, look, I'm the Messiah. Don't miss this. Here I am. Remember what Zechariah said? The Messiah would ride on a donkey and proclaim peace. It's me. Jesus' actions is, he did this to remind them and to fulfill the prophecy that had been spoken. This may very well have been the message that Jesus was sending, but for many of the Jews, they weren't hearing it. Why couldn't they hear it? Because they didn't want to. They didn't want to believe it. They really wanted Rome to fall and Caesar to stop taxing them. They needed Jesus to overthrow them, not come in peace. It was just so hard for them to see with their victim lenses. They wanted revenge and justice so bad that they couldn't see straight. They couldn't see what he was really doing. The problem is that what they wanted and what they needed were two different things. You guys know the old, uh, it's, it's a kind of a preacher's illustration I've heard for years, probably even in that, that old church I was describing earlier, about the little girl. A uh, little girl uh, loves playing with her plastic pearl necklace. You guys know this? She plays with her plastic pearl necklace every day. Um, she wears it everywhere she goes. She, when she goes to school, she loves the thing. She takes care of it. She makes sure that she cleans it off all the time and takes care of it in every way possible. She always knows where her little pearl necklace is. As she gets older, she's becoming more responsible, but she still hangs on to this plastic pearl necklace because she loves it so much. Her father... As she gets older, he sees that she is being responsible. She's taken care of this thing for years already. He decides that he's going to buy her a real pearl necklace. So he goes out and buys her the real pearl necklace. But when he gets home, he doesn't tell her about the new one. Instead, he asks her to give him the plastic one. She refuses, and she just can't find a way to give it up. 
He's ready and willing to give her her greatest desires, but she can't let go of the cheap imitation. This is what's going on with the Pharisees. The people think they know what's best, but they just don't. Overthrowing Rome would have just been a cheap imitation of what Jesus had in mind. You guys get that? Overthrowing Rome, which is what they imagined this was all about, was just a cheap imitation of what Jesus really had in mind. The Messiah had something bigger in mind. As Jesus entered the city, people spread their cloaks on the road as he passed them. They shouted a portion of Psalm 118. It was a passage that, again, everyone knew this passage. Um, and it was talking about the coming Messiah. The reason that they shouted this was because they knew the passage was about the coming Messiah. These people were saying, we believe this is the coming Messiah, so we're going to shout these things. And this is why they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They proclaimed that he was the king that was going to come. They shouted this fully understanding that Pilate had just marched in from the west with his soldiers and his big war horse. It made the Pharisees nervous. Right? Pilate's just come in with all of this grandeur and, and now you've got these people saying that this lowly guy on the donkey is the king. So the Pharisees are caught and it makes them nervous. So they come to him and they say to Jesus, basically, can you tell him to be quiet? Keep it down, right? Um, and Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I've read this for years. The stones will cry out. And I've always thought, what in the world? Now, we can, we can look at Old Testament stuff where um, we see that all of God's creation proclaims his name. And so the rocks could do that. You can think of it that way. Uh, I think there's something more that's going on here. And that's because of, again, this cultural stuff. So let me give you another quick little history lesson here. The Jewish people, they believed that one day when the Messiah came, he would resurrect all of the good Jews who had died. Then he would lead them into Jerusalem and begin his kingdom. So they're going to get resurrected, and then they would be led into Jerusalem to start the kingdom. Of course, the Jewish people would be taken well care of. They'll live a carefree life, you know, like happily ever after sort of thing with them. Anyway, because of this, the Jewish people, since Jerusalem would be the beginning of the new kingdom, all of them wanted to be buried near Jerusalem. Now, I got to go to Israel, and when I did, I saw something that made all of this make a little bit more sense. So let's, let's see the picture here. This is, this is Jerusalem today. You can see the gold um, dome there, which is on top of the Temple Mount. You can see the little road off to the right-hand side there. That's the road that Jesus would have been traveling when all of this procession would have been happening. But right here in the foreground, those are tombs. They buried people above ground. Now, when I was there, uh, it's been almost, well, it's been tw more than 20 years ago. There weren't quite as many of those tombs there. But th today, that's how many tombs there are. So they had above ground stone coffins. 
is the way they would bury people. Thousands of them overlooking the Kidron Valley with the Temple Mount Jerusalem in view on the next hill. Jesus would have been traveling that little pathway that you see coming up from the right-hand side towards the left. Um, anyway, some people believe, and I, this is kind of what I think, when Jesus said the stones would cry out, he may have been talking about these stones right here. The stones would cry out. If they believed, which they did, that when the Messiah came, the good Jews would be raised to life and then be brought into Jerusalem, then Jesus is saying to these people, look, if this, I could make the stones cry out. I could, I could raise these people from the dead. Right here and right now, if, these, if we shut these people up. So again, Jesus is proclaiming I am the Messiah. Don't miss it. I'm him. Do you see it? Just in this short story. Um, Jesus came in on a donkey like the prophets said the Messiah would do. He received a blessing from the people a mess, from the Messianic Psalm. Psalm. Again, proclaiming that he's the Messiah. And now he's telling these Pharisees face to face, I'm the Messiah. I could resurrect these guys. Could Jesus be any more clear? I don't think so. He is the Messiah. He just doesn't look the way that they thought he would. Pilate came from the west on a war horse, boldly proclaiming his exploits, his strengths, his power, Intimidating everybody that saw him with his soldiers and his weapons. Jesus came peacefully, no pretense, from the east on a donkey. But he said with his actions that he's the real king, the Messiah that they had all been waiting for. His kingdom clearly would be different. It wasn't about war or politics that would be led by a powerful conqueror, but it would be about peace, led by a gentle and lowly servant. By the way, what, whatever your current uh, political situation, whatever you think of the political situation that we have here in our country today, remember that Jesus' kingdom, his way, is different. No political system or party can thwart his purposes. He can use any party to accomplish his purposes, and he has a perspective that we cannot know or understand. As Christians, I believe we should consider entering our own political conversations on a donkey rather than a war horse. Since we serve the eternal king and politics fall under his rule and reign, we can be at peace in every political conversation. We can ride the donkey peacefully and humbly. There's no reason to fight. If we're with Jesus, we're going to win. Jesus is different. Tim Keller, famous preacher, he says, Jesus is coming in to rule and he's coming in to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. After 400 years of silence from God, after the Pharisees and teachers had corrupted the Old Testament law, when many people doubted that Messiah would come at all, the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries for him. They desperately wanted him to come and fulfill God's promise to crush 
the head of the serpent. God was faithful to his people and his word. Jesus was finally here, arrived in Jerusalem that day. Unfortunately, many of his own people didn't recognize him. What they didn't realize is that the head of the serpent, it wasn't Rome. It wasn't Caesar. God had not abandoned his promise. As a matter of fact, God was still faithful to his people and to his word. Whether they could see it or not, God was still faithful and had been faithful to his people and his word all along. Jesus was here, and he was about to begin the process of crushing the head of the serpent. Although they believed it was the oppression of Rome, the biggest issue that the people had was actually the oppression from sin in their own lives. Our biggest problem is not Rome, it's not our government, it's the sin in our own lives. The real oppressor is sin. Tim Keller says this, what did these people think they needed from God? To bring judgment down on the people that they thought were ruining the world, the Romans. What they really needed was somebody to come down to bear the judgment for them because they were ruining the world. Everybody in the human race was a part of that. We are ruining the world with our sin. We're all sinners. That's our biggest problem. From the time Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he marched toward the cross where he would take on the sin of the world. Just a few days from Palm Sunday, Jesus would be on the cross taking on the sin of those who hung him there. Our sin. He would appear to have been defeated. They thought he was dead. But just like God had said in Genesis, it would only be a bruise. I kind of have flashbacks to Monty Python. It's just a flesh wound, right? (laughs) On Sunday, Jesus would rise again and defeat death itself. He had flatlined, but his heart would beat again. Jesus defeated death itself. He rose again. In Christ today, death has no hold on us. In Christ, with the Holy Spirit, we're given the power to overcome sin. The serpent may still be around, but he wields no weapon that can stand against us. Covered by Jesus' blood, we're made whole and holy in Christ. Messiah is here. He's here today. He's here in this place, sitting right next to you. Jesus is here. So how do we respond? Corey Tenboom once said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments onto the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of the donkey that any of this was for him? If I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides for his glory, 
I give him all the praise and all the honor. If I can be the donkey, how do we respond that he is here? Be the donkey. Raise him up. Carry him everywhere you go so that others can see him. When we raise him up, that's worship. When we carry him with us, that's evangelism. Today we're going to continue in worship. We should worship not just in our songs, but with our lives. Worship in every decision that we make. Place him first and seek to live as he would have us. We don't worship to earn his favor. We worship because we can't help it. When we see all these done, how faithful he has been to us. We can't help but be moved to worship. We give him our lives, not, not because we don't want them, but because we understand that he could do more of them than we can. Let us worship. Because he is here. And he has overcome the sin that you have. And the sin that has hurt you. And the people around you. Call on him. And you'll be saved. Why don't you bow your heads with me? God, we come to you today recognizing the faithfulness that you have, how faithful you've been to us, your people, and to your word to send us the Messiah. When we had practically given up hope and wondered if he would ever show up, he did. And you had been working through it all. God, wherever we find ourselves today, if, if it seems like it's taking too long for you to intervene, give us faith. Guide us through those moments. For we know that as your people, you love us more than we can ever imagine and you want what's best for us. And that which is best for us will come because you are faithful to us. Faithful as a father. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. We repent today, God, recognizing that we fail and we do our own thing and we need your spirit to guide us to make better choices in those things. But thank you for Jesus. The worst to take our sin And thank you for that which is to come next Sunday as we celebrate what Jesus has done in rising again, defeating death. May we find the life that you have called us to 
in your forgiveness. And may we live out uh, the rest of our lives to honor you for all that you've done. May we be the donkeys lifting you up and carrying you with us everywhere that we go, in all of our conversations, all of our relationships. May you be glorified and honored. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.